Since 2018, we have been publishing and producing this podcast and I love it. It is a true joy for me and like just a dream come true. That sounds so silly to say, but my dream as a child was to have my own radio show. And here we are. We're more than five years into this podcast. And my favorite part has actually been getting to know our guests. And so what I'm going to do today and through the next couple of weeks, we're going to go back to the archives and share with you my favorite episodes and your favorite episodes. So we're resharing ones that I just absolutely couldn't get enough of and love the people, but also I want to share with you and reshare with you the podcast that you have loved the most. Today is the podcast episode that was wildly popular with Helping Families Thrive. That's Drs. Jenna Elgin and Shauna Alvarez. If you are not following them on Instagram, pause this podcast right now, go over to Instagram at Helping Families Thrive, and you're not going to want to miss their posts. They really, truly break down just the overwhelming, like evidence-based theories and strategies on parenting into very simple tactics. And so I love them. Um, and they are just wonderful people to talk through. And so we actually got on the podcast several times over the years, but the number one episode that you could not get enough of was called what is co-regulation. And this was a topic that like, you've probably heard it on different, you know, Instagram posts and theories and things like this, but like when it comes to co-regulating with your child, like what does that even mean? And how can we do this? And so I love this episode because they break it down so simply. They share with us strategies that are evidence-based and that are going to help your family today, right now. So anyways, let's jump in to this episode with doctors Jenna Elgin and Shauna Alvarez from Helping Families Thrive. Hey, I'm Becca Campbell, your pediatric sleep consultant here at Little Z Sleep, and we love sleep. We love it so much that we are on a mission to tell the world that sleep is a thing. Sleep is not a competitive badge of honor. It is not something that you have to wait and survive through and trudge through as a parent. You actually can have sleep now, and we are all about that. And here on the podcast, you will hear stories from well-rested families. You will hear troubleshooting, problem solving, and everything in between to help your family make sleep a thing. Of course, you don't have to wait for every episode to come out. You can actually get a step-by-step sleep training plan over on littlezsleep.com slash shop. From newborn to preschool, we want to help give you the resources to increase your family's sleep every single night and ensure that your family is happy, healthy, and well-rested. Hey, everybody. I'm so happy to have Shauna and Jenna back on From Helping Families Thrive. This is our series that I need to go back and look at the calendar because I've said it's once a quarter. I feel like it's been way more than that, which I'm happy for, but we want to have them on regularly on this podcast because we know there are so many fact and fiction, um, myth busting, very obscure things out there that you're going to find on social media. And we need to understand what's real, uh, what's truth, what's not truth with the lens of research and with the lens of their expertise. So I'm so glad you guys are back. Welcome. Thank you so much. We love coming on here. (laughs) Yay. Well, let's kind of dive in. I would love for you to share a little bit more about helping families thrive, your mission, your course now. What do you guys offer for families? Yeah. So Jenna and I are both um, research scientists turned into um, practicing psychologists and moms of three. We met in graduate school and have worked together in various research and clinical capacities. And we're also really, really close friends. Um, 
And uh, throughout our clinical work together and our journeys in, as moms, um, foster, adoptive, bio, all the journeys into motherhood, um, we started increasingly, particularly during COVID, to connect about all the misinformation out there and realizing that there was this gap between what we know from our training and what we do in our clinic offices and the information that's out there in the, the glory, beauty, and also overwhelm of the internet. Um, and so after many texts back and forth about like, oh goodness, did you see this? And then me saying, oh my gosh, I have all these overwhelmed parents coming in, having read 200 books and following 500 blogs. Um, and not all of this stuff is super helpful or really based in science at all. Um, we decided to try to do something about that. So that's that's really our mission is to try to kind of bridge that gap between uh, what we know from our academic training and our clinical work as um, psychologists and what's out there for the everyday parent, really bridging that gap. And so we started that mission out really by saying, okay, what's what are the foundations of actual evidence-based parenting? Let's create a course. There's all these wait lists because of COVID. Everybody's home with their kids. People need actual sound balanced information that's shame free. So we created our e-course essentials. That is an overview of the top four um, evidence-based parenting programs. Um, and we really just want to take the shame out of the conversation, the shame and the pendulum swinging and in the extreme camps and all of that and say, Hey, this is not one size fits all. We need to rely on reliable data. And then also say, you know, there's neurodivergence. There's um, differences between cultures and families, differences in capacities of families. So what are the pillars? Let's provide you with that and see where families can go from there. So that's that's been the aim of our work. And, and now we just kind of keep growing. We keep building on that foundation, um, kind of searching out in this misinformation minefield and picking one topic at a time to kind of go after. <laughs> that's us. Do you want to add anything, Jenna? No, I think you did a great job um, summarizing that. There we are. The, what did you say that was so good? The misinformation minefield. Like that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's like you're scrolling and you're like, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's terrible. And you just, you just never know what you're going to see and what you're going to land on. Um, but as, as you know, me and us, as, um, people who are not, um, in the field that you are in, sometimes we just, we just don't know. Right. And things can be put really well together in a graphic. They can be, um, really fancy and flashy, but that has nothing to do with it being truthful. So and it might even say research shows. It often says research shows. And so that is the part that's hard for us is, um, one research findings are often taken they're you know extrapolated to something that it doesn't even look like the original study anymore um, when they're when they're sharing it and then also um you know sometimes people are they hear that research shows this so then they start repeating it and no one's going back to really check what the research really says. And I think sometimes people actually believe that there's research that shows X, Y, and Z when, when there might not be, but you know, they're honestly believing that because they've heard it so many times. Oh, that's true. That is such a, um, it's no longer a trigger word for people when they're reading. It's just almost like, it's just part of the post, like research shows blah, blah, blah. And sometimes we don't even think twice about it. Yeah. yeah. So it's the, we could get on that rabbit trail for sure, but oh my gosh, you <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I should have said this and I'll probably add it into the intro. Um, but we have already um, recorded several podcast episodes together. Um, a, my favorite one on secure attachment versus attachment parenting. So you guys scroll down in the show notes, find the other episodes that, um, we've recorded together. 
those are good ones too. If this is your first one joining us. So we are going to talk about co-regulation. And when you guys sent a DM on Instagram saying like, okay, we, we want to talk about co-regulation. I was like, okay, great. What is that? I didn't really know. <laughs> and so, um, I was talking to my husband, Chad, I was like, yeah, I'm going to meet with them to talk about co-regulation. He was like, what is that? And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to kind of piece together my, um, detective word skills. Co-regulation is this help you helping your child regulate their feelings and emotions. Was I anywhere right? Absolutely. Yes. And the reason we want to talk about this is because we are seeing it being used a lot in social media on, uh, in the sleep space, but also just in kind of some general parenting information pages and really it's, it's being really simplified. Um, and, it's kind of a new word. And, and sometimes what happens is those become buzzwords and it's often used as the counterpoint to, uh, you know, instead of sleep training, your child needs co-regulation instead of a timeout, your child needs co-regulation instead of a consequence, you need to do co-regulation. So it's often used as a, an alternative to other approaches, um, while again, kind of simplifying what it means and not always kind of taking a research-based approach to what we mean by co-regulation. No, that's, that's a really important step to, to note as well, that, um, I'm glad you said it's also a new buzzword because it doesn't make me feel as bad. And I'm like, Oh good. I didn't know what that was. Um, but I, I, it's frustrating that those buzzwords become a thing. And I can, I mean, as you're saying that I'm already picturing the problem of on being on social media, like not this do this. And those are things that people just latch onto. So what are some of the myths and trends about co-regulation? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the ones that we see a lot are, you know, the first one is kind of, if you just respond sensitively and promptly, then your child will develop emotion regulation. So it's all about sensitivity and responsiveness and that that will in and of itself lead to emotion regulation or self-regulation. And that's certainly part of the, the puzzle. But as we go through our conversation today, you'll kind of learn some of the other pieces. Um, another myth we see is kind of promptness to crying is the most important thing for regulation. Um, another thing we see is like limit setting or consequences that involve any sort of like brief separation, um, you know, will damage attachment or uh are less preferable to you staying right next to your child. And then another one is co-regulation means actively engaging with your child uh, when they're upset. So kind of simplifying it down to that. And I think the way it's internalized a lot um, is just the idea that co-regulation means I am beside my child, comforting, responding to every behavior, no matter what. And if I do that, if my child feels safe enough, and if I am warm enough, then everything will be okay. Now, what does the opposite of that mean? That means that if my kid is not okay, meaning they don't have age-appropriate self-regulation skills, I am not warm enough. I am not responsive enough. I am not making my child feel safe enough. And those are really harmful and inaccurate messages. And a lot of what you guys said is not, um, it, it all sounds like, well, that that's good stuff, right? Like, I should help my child regulate and I should, I should help my child do those things. But like that fear mongering, that's such an issue. 
Yeah. And so I think one of the things that's important to, before we even dive into the specifics of co-regulation is to kind of look at, well, what's our ultimate goal? Uh, and that's self-regulation, right? So, um, and when we think about self-regulation, what do we, what do we actually mean by self-regulation? And there's this really helpful framework that is described in the research for what self-regulation is that I'm going to briefly walk through because I think that gives us a good jumping off point to think about, well, co-regulation is the development of self-regulation. So, so self-regulation is the act of managing your thoughts and your emotions. That, and this develops over an extended period from the day you are born through young adulthood. And as you can imagine, even into adulthood for some people, um, it serves the foundation for our lifelong functioning. So it is related to a lot of outcomes for people. So strong self-regulation is a really good thing. Um, but it's influenced by a lot of different things. So innate characteristics of a person like temperament, like we all come into the world with, with our own temperament and then brain wiring differences, developmental differences. It's also impacted by environmental factors like, um, you know, stress, adverse and prolonged stress. So not, not brief stress, but prolonged stress and adversity, uh, traumatic experiences, um, we also know that teachers and caregivers and adults in a child's life play a really important role in the development of self-regulation. And let's see. I think with the teacher's point, it's, you know, the first two things you mentioned, Jenna, are so um can be so stressful because it's like, okay, well, the kids come in with a certain level of wiring or you know, the kids are born into an environment that's stressful or not. But then when we think about the influence that teachers, providers, other adults have, this is where, you know, we actually have some influence and really powerful influence, right? So if you have a neurodivergent kid, if you have a kid who is highly sensitive and, and their feelings instead of little storms are more like inner tsunamis, right? Like everything's a 12, <laughs> um, regardless of, of whichever kid you have, um, these skills can be taught and strengthened by by shifting aspects of the environment, including how we respond, right? And that's what, that's, you know, how we can impact self-regulation skills. Um, yeah, and, and self-regulation is built upon this foundation of co-regulation. So the parent or caregiver, uh, child care provider, um, and how they interact with that child helps determine what that self-regulation kind of trajectory looks like over time. And so that's where we are really important and we do want to use co-regulation, but we're going to talk about how that means more. It's not one, one specific behavior. And I think that's the nuance that often gets missed in social media is co-regulation does not equal one specific thing. It's a variety of parent behaviors in the environment. Yeah. It's not just cozy corners and comforting no matter what, right. It's, it's more nuanced than that. Right. Um, so it's like self-regulation is built upon co-regulation and we, we imagine, or, you know, in the research briefs about, I'm moving my hands here, getting ready to talk about this, but nobody can see me, but we think about, um, every human having this self-regulation bucket essentially. Um, and, you know, in one picture is a, a child in this scenario, like the child's own, um, emotional regulation skills. And then in this other picture is the adult or parent or caregivers regulation skills. Right. And 
to have optimal functioning in life, we all need to have our emotional regulation bucket, our self-regulation bucket filled. But depending on a variety of factors, you know, how old a kid is, what's their wiring differences, what has their life experience been, right? Um, if you had, you know, um, part of poverty of stimulus, right? Neglect or anything like that as a young child, then even if you're now 12, <laughs> right, your wiring emotionally is going to be developmentally younger. And so in order to get that bucket filled, you know, you might require more of the irregulation, the regulation support from that parent. I'm, I'm moving my hands like I'm pouring pictures into a bucket here for, for listeners, right? So the tricky thing here is then, you know, co-regulation means the combination of both these pictures in the right proportions. Meaning, you know, if our child is, is filling this bucket up quite well, we don't need to dump our whole container in there. That's not what that means. Dumping our, emptying our entire pitcher into our 20 year old, uh, you know, self-regulation. That's not what that means. It's about being attuned enough to say like, oh, oh, he's filling up this much. Okay. Let me fill in that gap. Oh, we need a little more. Okay. Now my child's got this. Oh, I've taught some more skills. I'm going to add a little less there so that we can work together to collaboratively fill that bucket. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I was actually thinking this is not as, uh, I mean, it's traumatic to her because she doesn't know any difference, but my oldest, who's almost seven, um, we've all had a traumatic past year, right. And all the different ways, but in her particular case, um, she left her preschool. She went, she started kindergarten, kindergarten abruptly ended in March for, you know, for in her mind for no reason, because she didn't understand coronavirus. So that abruptly ended. And then we moved like two months later to start a brand new school in the fall with all new people wearing masks. Right. And it's like, she has never had a normal school year. Um, preschool was not even a full day. She's never experienced in the last three years of her school life. She doesn't even know what a normal day is. And so there were so many times this past year where like, I would kind of forget all of that and be like, why could she not handle this? Like if we made a change with something and it was like, Oh, <laughs> ding, ding makes sense. She doesn't, she's always gone through so much change and where you know, I may say like, well, that's made her resilient. It's actually just caused a lot of chaos because her emotional wiring is steadiness. That's what she values is things staying the same. But when and life happens and things don't stay the same, that when you were pouring the buckets, you know, I can see, no one else can see. I was like, yes, I feel like there was so much of me just pouring and being like, no, okay, let's, you know, try and help this over here, but make that make so much sense. And, yeah. And, and I, I really like this idea of like just enough support and I think, and it's hard, right? That's not always going to be super clear for us as parents. <laughs> I wish it was, right? Like, this is what to do exactly in this moment. But this idea that we want to be providing our, because the goal is self-regulation, right? Yes, throughout our lives, we are always, we're social beings. So we're always going to rely on our intimate relationships for support. Um, but but at the end of the day, we need a strong foundation of self-regulation. And so, um I was reading this study this morning, preparing for this, and, and the author was walking through this example of, you know, a parent is providing, you know, their child is upset about something and they're offering some verbal support, you know, you're, it's okay, I'm here for you. And they kind of keep doing this over time. And then this other parent where they, um, or this other kind of scenario where they, they do this and then they start to begin to say, oh, I can see you're upset. You can you know, what's something you can go do to distract yourself right now? Or um, what's, you know, is that really what happened? Or is there another way to think about it? So the parent starts prompting these skills. 
they're not always going to be well, well received by our kids. I want to point that out because some parents are like, I've tried that and it backfires, you know, or my child isn't receptive. Uh, but it was kind of this idea that sometimes we forget to, to build in that skill building and kind of get out of things over time. I do it. I think we all probably have, where we're like, oh, I could probably teach a skill here or prompt them to use a skill here instead of just jumping right in. And so I kind of just enough support for my child to regulate in this moment. Oh, I I like that example. Yeah. Yeah. To do that, we have to be confident enough to pause a little bit more. And I think there's been so much anxiety caused by this fear of this pressure to, if I don't respond um, like the perfect Mary Poppins Zen parent, then um, immediately, then my kid's going to feel isolated, alone, unsafe, and damaged. Um, That that has actually hindered our ability to use our most powerful tool, in my opinion, which is to pause before we respond. Because in pausing, we can take the time to reflect and attune with our kids and say, what is really needed right now? Where's my emotion regulation at, right? All of that. And, and Becca, I want to come back to what you said about your daughter, because I think it's so powerful that particularly right now, you know, when we look at what the research actually says about co-regulation, this is going to be really timely right now in this time when we're thinking about kids getting used to yet another transition, right? How do I help my kid co-regulate? You know, do, do I make a cozy corner? <laughs> do I, you know, I, I sound like I'm bashing cozy corners. I love cozy corners. I use cozy <laughs> corners, but I just don't believe that you know that is the only way to be a um, successfully co-parenting or co-regulating parent. Um, so, so if we get away from the myths, right, and we go to the nuanced truth, the the body of research, strong body of research on co-regulation, has three pillars. Again, I'm talking with my hands. I need a video podcast. Um, but the three pillars are. First, this this warm, responsive relationship. I think that's something where we're all kind of, this is being more accepted, right? Um, This is the foundation of all evidence-based parenting programs. How do we make these little deposits into kids' emotional piggy banks? How do we show what's called in the research unconditional positive regard, you know, responding to bids for attention most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time, showing warmth, responding to bids for affection, right? this is this is pretty consistent throughout the research. Okay, so that that doesn't seem to stir up too much stuff. That's a huge part of uh, co-regulation is just providing that throughout the day. So it's not just what you're doing when your kid's upset, right? Like successful co-regulation also depends on what you're doing when just randomly throughout the day, your kid are going, daddy, look, and you turning and smiling and patting them on the head, you are facilitating co-regulation. Even if and a lot it. of studies looking at co-regulation are not necessarily looking at when children are upset. They're coding co-regulation behaviors as moments when a parent and child are in sync yep. during play, or you know, or they're both happy. That's considered co-regulation. They're both their their affect is matching. That would be a moment of co-regulation. So when you actually look at the research, it's kind of looked at one in several different ways. So it's not consistently defined exactly the same when it's being studied, but that it's more than just what what is what do I do when my child is protesting or what do I do when my child is tantruming? Yeah. And that's why the bulk of most evidence-based parenting programs is spent on that first pillar of warm, responsive relationships um, through, throughout the day, you know, things included in that are child-led play, right? The foundation of, of our e-course of the incredible years of all these programs. So, okay. So that's pillar one. Um, then the second pillar identified is 
structuring the environment. And this reminded me of your daughter because you said for her, this pillar seems particularly important, right? So we refer to in our in our clinical work and in, in our e-course, we talk about to be clear is to be kind a lot, right? So like predictable routines. And when things get unpredictable, creating new structured concrete routines where kids know what to rely on. There's a rhythm to their life, right? They know that when they do this, this will be the consequence, positive or negative. And, and yes, I want to just repeat that. I just said the word consequence as a research-based component of co-regulation that is included in the practice briefs about what the like, research summaries of right. best practices. Right. The best practice is that part of structure in the environment includes predictable routines, clear expectations, and logical consequences for misbehavior. Right. And this idea that consequences, including, well, that's a whole nother talk, but including time in, time out, whatever you want to call it, a moment of separation to calm down (laughs) is completely appropriate as part of developing co-regulation. Okay. So this idea that you have to be next to your child all the time, that it's all about positive Pollyanna (laughs) is not, is not fair. It's not based in science. Um, Okay. So we've got two, the third one is the teaching and coaching self-regulation. And this, Jen, I think gets back to what you said about, you know, sometimes it's, it's, uh, we forget to scaffold and we forget to fade back, right? So what we do outside of the, the dysregulated moments, right, where we are coaching and practicing um, scripts, um, you know, we are sitting down and saying, you know, oh, when you get upset, you can do this, or let's take a deep breath together. Not when the child is upset, but outside of other moments, right? other moments throughout the day, labeling positive and negative emotions throughout the day. These are all aspects that are going to facilitate co-regulation and then self-regulation. This one's so important because if, if one family, let's say I see a post that says, you know, instead of isolation, I can just read some to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, instead of, that's actually a really good idea. Yeah. Right. We should, we should do that. Do you have some, Jenna? Yeah, give me just a second. (laughs) Okay, but I'll give you the gist of it. Instead of being a bad, isolating parent who's doing the wrong thing. Oh, here's one. Here we go. Children regulate stress and anxiety levels through closeness and proximity to caregivers they feel safe with. Yeah. Not in and of itself bad. Mm -hmm. Lacks nuance, right? It makes you feel like it's all about proximity. I must be close. And that's just, so first of all, this is, uh, for some kids is absolutely going to be true for some families when your child is screaming or crying and you come over and you're like, I can see you're mad. I'm here. I'm here. I'm not leaving. And you put your arm around them. I'm here. That is going to help them soothe. And you are attuning to your kid and filling their bucket in a way that works. Beautiful, successful co-regulation moment. Awesome. Parenting. Another, another parent, Kid is doing the same thing. You come over and you sit next to your kid while they're mad. And you're like, I'm here. I'm not leaving. You're mad. I'm right here, bud. You get punched in the face and the screaming gets bigger. And the kid is screaming, I want space. Get away from me. Both of those parents are equally good parents. They are equally healthy parents. And they have different kids because kids are not robots and parents are not robots. Right. And so there are other aspects of co-regulation and time and space is okay. It doesn't so, mean you're doing it wrong. Go ahead, Jenna. Well, another one that we see is let's replace distance with presence. And, and later on this post, someone said like, you know, what do I do when my child is hitting me? 
And the recommendation is to stay there, even when your child is hitting you from, from some of these providers. And that makes us feel nervous because it is not in line with the research and is unsafe. Um, it, and it, you know, structure of the environment may include a structured two to three minute break for a child to, to be safe again. Right. And that may or may not be, we're not necessarily just talking about timeout here, right? But if mm-hmm. your child is saying they need space, part, we're also worried about attunement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Attunement, being, you know, aware of your child's cues and feel, your child feeling emotionally connected and like you understand what they're needing in that moment. But then for some reason, we see this recommendation that even when a child is showing you that they need space and that you're processing and coaching and attempts at responsivity in that moment are like pouring gasoline on their emotional fire, right? Because that's how they experience their emotions. Mm -hmm. For some reason in that moment, we're not supposed to be attuned and we're supposed to stay there no matter what, because God, I'm going to be really, you know, connected with you. Even if you don't want to, (laughs) we will be connected and you will like it because I'm going to be a good parent. And, you know, we actually see in comment sections, you know, what if my kid is hitting me and punching me, asking for space. And the response that we see is hold their arms down and say, I'm here. I'm here. And this is suggested as a new paradigm. Like let's, let's, let's start a revolution. Let's, this is a new paradigm. This is not new. In the 1940s, the term refrigerator mother, okay, was coined by Leo Kanner, okay, to describe a type of mothering or a mother that was so uncaring that the children were quote unquote traumatized into the retreat of autism. That's the way that it was, it was framed. Okay. That, that was in the 1940s. So this paradigm has been around for quite a while. Autism is caused from moms being not warm enough. Yeah. Mm. Cold, unresponsive, right? That was a a well-accepted kind of theory for a while. Right. So what did we have in response to that? We had holding therapy. Where, you know, if you hold, even as your child is screaming, trying to get away and we hug and we hold for hours as the child screams. And this is the therapeutic repair to make them feel safe enough, warm enough, seen enough to fix them and to fix us as mothers, because of course we were too cold. So now what we see is this emotional equivalent of that emotional holding therapy, you know, where it's like, you will stay and I am here and I am present and I see you and I see you and punch, 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 scream, scream, scream. And then everybody's crying and screaming. Mm-hmm. Right. Sorry to get, I just, oh, this fires me up. And then we get this yeah. message from families that are like, I want to be gentle. I want to co-regulate. And I just screamed at the time, or I just shook my kid, or I just did because I'm so afraid of stepping away. Yeah. Just stepping away to co-regulate. If you have a baby who is not sleeping through the night and you are simply frustrated that no matter what sleep sack you try, no matter what time you feed them, no matter what the lighting situation was or what the scent was in the diffuser, they just won't sleep. I have a free course that I want to share with you. It's going to walk you through my four steps to solve night wakings. And this will give you my exact step-by-step ways on how I teach the framework of baby sleep. And it is yours for free. You can get all of the videos and this free course right now at littlezsleep.com slash four steps. This is four steps to solve your baby's night wakings. And it's a free course ready for you now. Check the link below or head to littlezsleep.com slash four. That's the number four steps. And a lot of it is really tied into attachment, which, you know, Becca, we spent so much time talking about attachment in that one podcast. And Such a good episode. A lot yeah. of this regulation is really kind of coming out in that conversation. So like 
any sort of space will damage attachment. And that's why you need to do co-regulation instead, you know, misusing the word co-regulation, right? Like, because what they're meaning by that is like staying near your child, which as we've already described, co-regulation is a variety of behaviors and, you know, may include, you know, having a routine or may include teaching a self-regulation skill at a different time, right? It's lots of different things. Um, and, and so it really does come down to this, this um, attachment conversation. And I think, you know, go back and listen to that episode, but just as a reminder that that sensitivity is really important for attachment. But, but what we mean by sensitivity is not that you cannot take a brief break from your child or, or um, you know, this is going you know, obviously relevant for your followers, but, you know, use do something like sleep coaching or sleep training or supporting your child in these ways is not what is going to make or break attachment. It's, it's so much bigger than that. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yes. There are so many moments. I wrote down one, you said a while ago, the promptness to crying, right? There's the promptness in response because, you know, that's, that's probably what I see most of all through all of this, because then we go back to the proximity, right? Well, I've got to be close. So I, I've got to be like right there to help them with that. Um, and I, I kind of, um, not joke, but it's, it's true. But in our preschool program, I had so many little kids who have been sleeping with mom and dad, and now we're not sleeping with mom and dad, but mom is right there sitting beside them. I've had so many kids say, would you just leave? <laughs> like, if you're not going to lay in the bed, would you just go? And they're like, oh, wait, what? And like the, the text that I would get from the mom being like, they just told me to leave. Can I leave? Yes, please leave. Right. Like if they tell you to go. So we say that now in our course, like if they tell you to go, go, um, yeah. that's wonderful. You know, that they decided like, okay, if that's not happening, then I'm going to go over here and, and I'm going to go to sleep. But I, I think it is definitely a twisted world where mothers are tricked to believe that the relationship with their child has to depend the, the right relationship or the, the right path of self-regulation is all about that proximity. That's probably what I see the most just because that's the heartbeat behind the sleep training is like, well, I can never leave my child. Right. Um, but that's all of this was just like, so, so good. And I hope, I, I know this is going to be shared so much. Yes. Go dive into something here that I, so I nerded out when I, we made a, um, an attachment and sleep presentation for, for someone and recently, and I dove into the research like hours and hours and hours. And I want to share something that I learned that I, on, I actually didn't know before, um, that I think your followers, um, might find really interesting and it's related to attachment and crying. And so one of the things that we one of the beliefs that comes up a lot in the attachment world is the faster I respond to crying, the better, right? This is kind of a core belief behind attachment parenting and, uh, you know, that that, that in, in some schools of thought around parenting. And this comes from some really important research from Mary Ainsworth, which we talked about some. She's kind of probably the most well-known attachment researcher that there is. And she did a study, the Baltimore study. It's a very well-known study on attachment where she kind of coined some of these really, um, these terms related to attachment, uh, secure attachment, uh, insecure attachment. She followed some families, 25 families for, um, for many years. And 
she published a page paper with Bell, her co-author, in I think 1972. And the main finding was that um, responsiveness and infant crying, that's the name of the paper. And the faster you respond, that the less crying you get later. So responding quickly will lead to less crying later on. This was the big finding. And so much has come from this finding. So interestingly, which we don't hear much about after this, some behaviorists, so there's kind of these two camps, attachment and behaviorism, and I won't go into that, but some behaviorists kind of said, well, looking at your analyses, your statistics in the study, you actually can't make this statement. There's a lot of problems with the way you did this these analyses here. Um, you don't have enough power, which is a statistical, you know, basically you don't have enough people to do this type of thing. And you needed to do it this way. And therefore your findings, we can't really say what you found. All right. So some criticism came out. This other attachment researcher, so hang with me. I know this is kind of detailed, but this other Dutch attachment researcher, I can't say his last name, um, Marius Van something. Um, He's this very prolific, prolific attachment researcher. He started publishing, I think in the seventies and published a paper in 2021 on attachment, like 40 years. And one of the most cited uh, researchers that there is, I mean, he's, he's very, and he studies attachment primarily. He went out to replicate Ainsworth study. That was his goal was to take the criticism about the analyses and replicate it with a bigger sample and, and do the stats correctly, essentially. With thinking he would find the same thing. That was what his um, prediction was going into this. Because a lot of times you have a, you know, a prediction when you, when you develop a, a research study. And, but what he actually found was the opposite. Um, that moms, it was studying moms, uh, when they waited longer, babies actually decreased in crying over time. And so he has published about this and it has not gotten much traction, hardly at all, honestly. Like you look at how many times it's been recited. And, and this was more, more babies and families than the original study. And, um, and so his, his theory is this idea of differential responsiveness or um, grad, that, that it's not, crying isn't an all or nothing signal. It's not a, I cry, I need someone right away every single time. And that was kind of what came out of the Bell and Ainsworth stuff. And, and that, you know, we can give some space and time and that actually leads, he uses the word self-soothing, this attachment researcher in the context of infants crying. And it's, and then in 2021, so just this year, he, him and some other co-authors uh, wrote this paper, and I'm hoping it will get some some eyes on it. But basically, a new theory of attachment that combines learning and attachment theory, because attachment theory hasn't been able to be replicated well in the way that it's presented. And his belief is that yes, there are these you know sensitivity and responsive responsiveness are important but there's learning involved here. The way we respond shifts things. And it kind of, that idea of crying is um, 
you know, our responses are actually important here and our kids can learn a lot if we give them some space and, and listen to their cues. So anyway, I thought your listeners might find that um, important when they see different things related to promptness or uh, responsivity, that it's more nuanced than some of these conversations might lead it to believe. Pe- oh, for sure. Think. And what I love about that is I, I know so many um, people listening are also like, well, I could have told you that, right? But the, it's always good. They're like, well, I know that, right? But yeah. it's, it's that layer of like affirmation um, and that layer of like, yeah, this is exactly like, that's right. And, and this is, um, I'm thinking about your mug that you showed us earlier, like, well, in the first place, <laughs> let me just show you this article, right. That like exactly spells out that what I'm saying is right. Um, and it's, it's, it's like affirming and that's the way it's, it's affirming, right. Because you know, it works for your family, but it's the noise of all the mess that we run into that tells you you're bad for doing that. Right. And you're like, but I'm feel good. And I'm happy. How can that be bad? Right. Yeah. Well, and we see that with sleep. You know, if you just respond super promptly when they're little, they're going to start sleeping more independently when they're ready. Right. But always respond immediately and promptly because that's what Bella Nainsworth's study suggests. Right. And then you have these parents with like 18 months old and they're like, well, it's not like what's wrong or my kid just might not be ready. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you know, whatever the reasons are where sometimes we might that crying isn't in and of itself the indicator that something's not working or that it's, it's wrong. Like I think sometimes we're so afraid of distress, right. That we, we might jump in. And when we're talking about filling up that bucket, just enough support. So how can we meet our kiddo with just enough support? And that might mean that, that they're upset at times that they don't like some of the limits or the boundaries or um, something that we're doing, but that might allow them to delay gratification better down the road or to regulate better down the road because we've given them an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of goes back to like stress, like stress is not all or nothing, right? Trauma is bad. Extreme stress is bad, but no stress isn't, isn't the goal, right? Like you have to activate your system to learn to regulate it. So if we're never allowing our kids to be at, you know, to experience uh, any distress, then they don't learn self-regulation at all. Right. And, so, it, you know, it makes me think that there's, I just got this visual of, you know, here's your choices. Either, you know, your kid, your kid doesn't want to swim. And so either you sit and cuddle with them on the, on the side of the lake, you know, and that means I'm a good parent or uh, they'll be fine. And you throw them in the deep end, you know, which parent, which type of parent are you pick one. Right. And, and that's just not what it is. There's so many other options that would be safe. We're not saying anything goes here, right? But what we are saying is, hey, let's take the research about co-regulation behavior, healthy parenting. What are the pillars? And then let's recognize that, you know, this might look a bit different within these boundaries for each family, depending on family characteristics, the child's characteristics, right? Like what Jenna was saying earlier about our fear of distress, right? If we go back to the co-regulation buckets, I'm holding my hands up with my two pictures again, and I'm looking at this parent regulation bucket, And if my bucket is empty, either because I never developed self-regulation skills myself, or I have a really high needs kid and, oh my gosh, this is really hard for me. And I have like two drips to give that needs to be addressed. And looking at that parent with an almost empty pitcher and saying like, stay there, dump it out. You know, if you just pour enough, 
that makes things worse. <laughs> that makes things worse. So we need to come back to this, you know, what we always talk about the pendulum swinging a little bit. This researcher we were talking about in the attachment world is really coming back and saying, how do we find balance? And as a, as a real, you know, I say real, as a, I don't know, a scientist I really respect, he reevaluated his, his initial aims and his initial biases and kind of said, how do we integrate? Science evolves over time. It keeps us humble. How do we take what we know now and find some balance and update rather than sticking to like, well, this is my camp and this has got to be true. And that's what we want to see more in this co-regulation world is, hey, there's some nuance here. Let's stop judging each other so harshly. Let's find some balance and, and leave some room for individual differences. Absolutely. Which really leads us into the danger of what is the danger of a one size fits all misinformation on co-regulation? Yeah, I think, you know, this comes to families that I see in clinic, what we talked about earlier, where more and more what I am seeing, you know, absolutely. Do I see parents that use physical punishment or who grew up with physical punishment or wanting to do something different? Absolutely. 100%. I, I absolutely see that in clinic and, and I think people are more used to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to support this family in getting away from the harsh parenting practices that we also know to be harmful, right. And helping them use more research-based evidence-based positive parenting practices. Um, but what I see more than that now is the opposite is families who feel this pressure, um, to co-regulate with their child in this prescriptive way who then end up staying really close to the fire. Like maybe they have a child whose wiring makes their brains catch fire when they are upset. And because the family feels like, okay, the only way I can be a good parent is by staying right by these flames. I'm not afraid to get burned, baby. Bring it on. I love you so much. You're safe. You're safe. I love you. And then everything blows up in flames, right? And so what do they end up doing? They get hurt. They accidentally hurt their children because they're holding their arms down, which I'm really struggling with how that is viewed as uh, more respectful than taking a step back. I I really struggle with that idea by not listening to the child's cues when the child is saying, go away, right? So I see parents doing that, which is not in line with their values and leads to harsher parenting practices and more inconsistent parenting practices. Because what do I do? I start off super gentle, Like, okay, I'm here. I love you, baby. I'm here. I love you, baby. Stop hitting me. I'm trying so hard. And then everything blows up. So this kid is now in this home environment that is really emotional, emotionally volatile with inconsistent, unpredictable responses because I wanted so damn hard to fit this Instagram version of what co-regulation and good parenting looks like. Oh, I get a little, I get a little. But it's so, oh my gosh, it's so horrible that that is. And actually I love your analogy um, of the parent who's on the side of the lake, like hugging and kind of, oh, it's fine. You don't have to swim. I love you. Right. And then the other parent's like, go swim. I actually think there's an, I think there's a more extreme than sitting by the lake. I think it's the parent that's like, oh, you don't want to do this. Okay. We're all leaving everybody pack in the car and go right. Like we'll remove ourselves from this. Um, and there's so many different stages of parents all along the way, um, that I can visually see on that beach, like doing all the different things. And I do believe that, um, there's just the extremes represented, um, sometimes on, on social media, it's either you're the one like, oh, don't be the one shoving off the dock. Um, and maybe don't also be this one. Like, I, I just feel like those are sometimes it's just the extremes are highlighted. Nothing in between. That makes right. sense. 
Absolutely. And I, and I, I think it's, we're certainly like seeing a lot more of the one extreme being presented and then parents being either like trying to do that. And then other parents, you know, we see a lot of like dads who are like, well, that, you know, who tend to be maybe a little bit more on struggle with some of the, the really gentle things. So then they can't engage in the conversation at all. Cause it just feels so distant for them. And, and I don't, I don't like to gender stereotype because it can happen for mm-hmm. any of us. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, if they grew up with really extreme, it's that pendulum swinging, but then they, it, it feels so foreign that I can't even like take the pieces of this that are helpful. Um, and that's why having this more balanced and the balanced approach, I think, Whenever we look at this, whenever Sean and I go back, we're like, well, what's the evidence-based treatment for anxiety? Is it to never push your child to do something that they're afraid of? No, it isn't. It's actually exposure. It's doing the thing you're afraid of. That's the treatment for anxiety. Okay. I mean, in, in a thoughtful way, right? But, uh, you know, whenever we go back to this, but then we see these messages that are like, never push your child to do something unless they are ready. They'll do it when they're ready. They will do it when they're ready if you're just loving and supportive enough. And and I, I my my heart always hurts for my family. I think the part of this that makes us so passionate is because we've worked with so many families in our clinic who hear that message and they're like, well, what am I doing wrong? Because my child still doesn't want to sleep in their own bed. And I thought if I was just supportive enough or my child doesn't want to go to school now. And I thought if I was just empathetic enough that they would eventually want to go and not recognizing, you know, how anxiety works and and the way that it comes out and individual differences and how we might accidentally reinforce some of these things, maybe because of some of the messages we get on parenting. And, um, you know, we just want families, we, we just have a heart for families and, and, you know, our passion comes out when we're like, oh my gosh, our families are going to hear that and think blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. You know, we can just predict what's going to happen in our next sessions. Yeah. Well, I want to lean into a second as we kind of wrap everything up. I want to, um, highlight what you said about parents. So one of our team members, um, Sarah and her husband, Ben, um, are going through y'all's course. And she was like, we're going through it very slowly though, <laughs> because they, she was like, we have to watch it together. Um, and he is, um, uh, detective. So he works a lot of weird shifts and nights and things like that. So she's like, we just, we watch it together. And she was like, I, I don't want to watch any of it without him because they were both, you know, coming from differences and what they have. And so that's what I love about what you guys, um, what you just said. And, and what we say here at little Z's too, is like, it, it has to be a team. You, you can't just decide that one parent is going to be in on it. And the end, you know, here's honey here, honey, this is what we do. Right. And, it, and honestly it is, it's the gender stereotype. I deal, I deal with 90% moms. It's just, that's what it is right now. Um, but I, I, I do get really excited when I hear about both parents being involved or both parents watching it at the same time, because that's like, ah, yes, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, I so agree. And I, you know, Jen and I often reflect on who is this aimed at? Like first, who are the voices being lifted up? Right. Like all of this advice is coming from a pretty homogenous, <laughs> um, board of experts, right? So, you know, it might not be really good at recognizing the diversity and parenting practices across the world that actually can lead to healthy outcomes, right? It doesn't have to be one size fits all. Um, and also, you know, what about situations, you know, my kids, godfathers, for example, um, they can't read parenting books, 
you know, they're the two dads of a baby girl and they don't read parenting books because they feel so excluded from the conversation, right? Because there's a chapter on dads. Here's the chapter for you, dad, on how to use your goofiness while you're fixing things around the house to relate to your kids. And they're just like, what, what is this? And so we wanted to take some of that bias out as we have some of these conversations, right? Like this, this does not have to follow this exact script. This does not have to look this one way. There's really good research. There's good pillars, right? We, we always talk about, you know, yes, have a playbook, get on the same page, have a compass to take you up this mountain. Your exact path does not have to be as prescribed, right? Like look at the evidence-based research and then get, get rid of some of that noise if it's, if it's not working for your family. Absolutely. Well, I want to make sure we covered everything that you guys had, because I know you have really prepared for this. Is there anything else that we, we need to dialogue about when it comes to co-regulation? I, I wanted to just point out a few of the, the specific strategies, just from a really practical um, standpoint for parents when they're like, okay, well, how do I teach my child self-regulation skills? Um, some of the things that have been shown to be kind of helpful, and I'll do them super quick since I know we're, we're um, wrapping up here. but. Um, I mentioned this earlier, kind of teaching a skill and then over time prompting it. So, uh, you know, for example, this might be um, Edie. We all know Edie in this conversation. Um, She's my little child. Uh, Whining was something that we struggled with for a while, right? And so we would prompt her to use her regular voice. So at first, when she was younger, it might be like, oh, I can see you're upset about that. Over time, it was like, please use your regular voice. And then over time, we went to a nonverbal signal when she would whine, Um, you know, just something that her and I came up with that would be a reminder to use her regular voice. And, you know, with age and practice, that behavior improved dramatically. So that's what, you know, teaching a skill and then prompting it over time and gradually fading out. Um, following can I just say that's, can I just say that is not, um, a lot. I think many parents could be listening to this podcast and being like, Oh my gosh, this is another thing I have to add to my like to-do list of like things, things I have to learn. Right. But what you just said is not anything that is a huge, uh, time. It is a time commitment because it's consistency, but it's not like carve out eight hours of your life today to work on this. Right. Like that's, these are manageable things. No, and they're the things that you're, you're, you know, you're doing in your home right now, or you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're behaviors that you're seeing every day, and you're kind of just being thoughtful. Okay, well, we've been doing this. Like, how can we? What do we want our child to do instead over time? Okay, take some deep breaths. Okay, now how can we? We get out of that active process gradually over time. Um, you know, some other things are, are playing with your child and allowing them to take the lead. That's actually part of co-regulation. Um, being a lot of the co-regulation research is looking at interactions during play. And so, um, you know, letting them lead, not being overly directive during play. Um, redirection is a great tool that has been shown, especially with young toddlers, to be helpful for uh, emotion uh, regulation skills. So first helping distract them and then teaching them, okay, you're, you're feeling upset. Is there something you could do right now while you wait for mom to be ready? I have to cook dinner. Um, go find something to do. Here are some options, right? So you might be more active to begin with and then gradually get out of that over time. So those are, I just wanted to highlight some of the tools that have been shown in the research to be helpful for, uh, teaching kids. 
No, I love those. They're, um, again, you guys are so good about, um, I'm not saying like adding to the to-do list, but sometimes that's what people think is like, okay, I need to fix my life. Right. And it's like going to be a lot of work. It's, it's the small habits. Like what you're saying, these are some small habits that we're working. Parents are already doing co-regulation. I guarantee every listener in here is doing co-regulation already. Yep. You know, this is not something that you are not doing, or it is just a thing that is happening. And we can look at how is it done? What are the ways that it's done effectively? And what are the things that make it less effective? And so Mm -hmm. let's do more of these ones. And we're not going to get it right every time, nor is the goal to do it exactly right every time, but let's do more of these things and maybe less of these things. And, and over time we'll get good results. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to add to that. If, if a family is getting acquainted with an evidence-based parenting intervention, right? Like when we talk about this, the incredible years, parent-child interaction therapy, triple P, PMTO, these are the four that we based our, our e-course essentials on, right? If you're familiar with that line of work and you're using the tools from that, guess what? You are setting the stage for co-regulation. You actually don't need a separate toolkit on co-regulation. That's exactly what those programs, including our course, are found to be, right? So people that utilize those tools have kids that develop co-regulation and self-regulation skills. So it's not like, oh gosh, now I need to teach my kids self-regulation. No, all those things you're doing throughout the day, right? In a neutral moment, a positive moment, a challenging moment, that is teaching co-regulation. Yes. No, absolutely. And that, um, that, I think where I'm coming from is like, you're scrolling, you're scrolling, you're feeling guilt, right? Like, Oh, I'm not doing that. Oh, I'm not doing that. When you are doing these things, you don't, you are, you're just, you don't see it labeled in the right way, or you're not seeing it modeled in the way that is realistic. So yeah, this is always so helpful. And a new word to maybe capture some things that parents are already doing. And so it can, it sounds like it's a new concept or a new construct, but it's not necessarily something that parents aren't doing already. Right. This was so helpful. Gosh, thank y'all so much for spending time sharing this information with us. Um, we, I can't wait to see what new, well, I don't know. That's always a weird thing to say. I can't wait to see what bad trend pops up on social media, but you know, in social media, something will pop up. We'll talk about it. Um, but this is so helpful. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that blast from that episode from years past. I cannot get enough of helping families thrive. We actually are going to be hosting them. They are a keynote speaker. They are opening up my conference with my other business called the Sleep Sorority, which is where I help sleep consultants all over the world market and grow their business. If you are a sleep consultant listening to this, you are invited to that conference. It's this November 12th through 15th in a Gungwit, Maine, actually. Really excited to go to Maine at the beautiful Cliff House Resort and helping families thrive is going to lead us through a toddler tantrums workshop. I'm really excited about that, but they are wonderful people. I've known them for years and I get to meet them in person. So I'm, I just, I couldn't even end this episode without saying that. Um, but thank you for being here every single week as we continue to share our podcast as just helping you make sleep a thing, but also helping your family be that Um, healthy, happy, and well-rested as best as you can be. So anyways, we're going to go back through the archives over the next couple of weeks to just reshare some things that we've loved and maybe you've missed if you are new here, but I'm so glad you were here. Sweet dreams. See you next time.